according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we look for these things, be diligent to be found by, by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Didn't mean to cut people off, but my sound engineer started the tape and gave me the th thumbs up. <laughs> so I thought, wow, we're live. I better start speaking. All right, turn to John chapter 2 this morning. John chapter 2. Dealing with the first miracle. That point four you see on the screen is in con consistent with the outline that you have in your Harmony of the Gospels. We are dealing with the portion of the Harmony of the Gospels that's titled the subsection that's titled Beginning of Jesus Ministry. And under that portion that's titled Beginning of Jesus Ministry, uh, the fourth part of that section is titled The First Miracle. John 2, verses 1 through 11. Preparation for our study. Let's take time for silent prayer. Ask the Father to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace, thankful for your mercy, rejoicing, Father, in how you faithfully supply our needs and you do so abundantly beyond anything we could ask or think. Father, we want to thank you this morning for the blessing of this new projector and the opportunity we have to make use of it today and just, uh, again, giving you the praise and delight for all things are yours and you've supplied them so richly to us. Thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. You no longer have to look at the puke green, almost yellow. You now have husky gold and uh, husky purple, as a matter of fact. All right, we are dealing with the first miracle. We have accumulated disciples already in this study. We've seen how the Lord accumulated his disciples, uh, at least with respect to the first four, five, or six. I believe six, understanding uh, John and uh, James to be in the picture here, as well as Andrew uh, Peter, uh, Philip, and Nathaniel. So whether it's four disciples or six disciples, in any event, uh, Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding, as is described in John chapter 2 and verse 2. Let's just read through it here. It's uh, the first 11 verses of the chapter. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for, Jewish, uh, for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now to take... Uh, and take it to the head waiter, so they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. All right, this is the first miracle, not only the first miracle recorded in the Gospel of John, which it is, but it was the first miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ performed ever, described in verse 11, the beginning of his signs, 
describing where it is. So the apocryphal records of Jesus Christ and the childhood miracles that he did as a boy and all the different things there. Um, you can discount those because the biblical record itself says this was the first miracle that Jesus performed. As I read some of those apocryphal accounts, uh, <clears throat> you know, they make the Lord out to be some kind of a trickster, you know, <laughs> some kind of a, you know, juvenile using his deity for juvenile purposes. Such uh, obviously is not biblical and not consistent with the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the first miracle, not only the first uh, that he ever did, but the first of uh, only seven that are recorded in the Gospel of John. Um, he did many, many miracles, and there are a, a number of them are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but even Matthew, Mark, and Luke acknowledge that they're not giving the entire story. And John even says, you know, if we had to write down everything Jesus did, the whole world couldn't couldn't contain the books. So doubtless there were many, many more miracles that he performed, other things that he taught, other messages that he spoke. For example, John, unlike the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which do a lot of the uh, the discourse messages, the Sermon on the Mount, the uh, Upper Room, uh, the Mount Olivet Discourse, a lot of other things like that, a lot of the parables, uh, a lot of the miracles. The Gospel of John does not record quite that number of miracles. In fact, it limits it to seven. Seven miracles that are recorded in the Gospel of John. And if you will join me at the end of the Gospel, we're going to spend quite a bit of time here in John simply because we're at this portion of the chronology where he's headed up to Galilee and and really Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't deal with this portion of his ministry. It's up to John to reveal this uh, aspect of it. And uh, in John chapter 20, it says in verse 30, there are uh, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But if they have been written so that Oh, but these, here it is, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. All right, these, the seven, gospel, the seven miracles that are presented in the Gospel of John, or the eighth, there are some pastors that will include the resurrection as the eighth miracle or sign, but whether you number it as seven or eight, you can take the ones that are presented here, starting with water to wine and going all the way through the resurrection, and you can use that as a framework, as a basis for evangelism. You can use that as a framework or a basis to present Jesus, as it says here, the Christ, the Son of God, the basis for eternal salvation. And it forms just a nifty little outline, and in fact it is the purpose clause for the book, for the Gospel of John. So, back to chapter 2 then, as we look at it. Probably of all the miracles, um, in, in some ways, this one is perhaps the most difficult to teach. It's, it's, maybe it's the simplest, it's the most straightforward, and because it is so straightforward, he went to a wedding, they ran out of wine, he turned the water to wine. Because it's so straightforward, you're left kind of saying, well, okay, so what? <laughs> what does that mean? What's, what's the point being made? What's the, what's the impact of that, of that miracle? See? And how is it that that miracle contributes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? That is, to the, the gospel purpose that we recognize as the purpose clause in John chapter 20 and verse 30. So hopefully in the process of going through this miracle today, the, the aspect of the so what 
will uh, will really sink into us. And I think part of that's going to be helped by virtue of really uh, exegeting well and showing the 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 conversation between Christ and his mother here uh, for what it really is and not for how it's usually taken. See, and so we'll break that down here as well. Point one, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee and his first stop was Cana. Don't have any maps prepared for today, but we can count on many maps coming up <laughs> with uh, the resolution and brightness to actually display maps and actually see what we're looking at. Uh, we can do a lot of geography work and the opportunity to uh, be able to see things clearly will be a true blessing. He purposed to go into Galilee. We had this from back in chapter 1 and verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee. And the tracking of the days here is, is quite interesting. Following his return from the uh, temptation episode, um, there's a, a day-by-day record here in which uh, John the Baptist is going to testify on behalf of Jesus Christ, uh, in which the disciples are going to follow after Jesus Christ, in which other disciples are going to be added, such as Philip and, and uh, Nathaniel here. And then chapter 2 begins with that kind of awkward reference on the third day. And it's only a little bit awkward. We have to look at it and say, does that relate to the to the, the day-by-day sequence we have in chapter 1, or is it simply an acknowledgement that Going from Jerusalem to Galilee is a three-day trip. <laughs> All right, and so it's on the third day that uh, on the day of their arrival, when they uh, make it into Galilee, that uh, the wedding event was taking place. His first stop was Cana. The second thing we want to observe: there's really a total of seven things we're going to get out of this. Secondly, both he and his disciples were invited. The verb is kaleo. It does speak of an actual invitation to call, used of, in fact, our call to salvation, used of any other particular call in general. Both he and his disciples were invited to a wedding being held there. The statement in verse 2, both Jesus and his disciples. And the idea of both, as it's structured there, spotlights both the parties involved, see. If you take the word both out of it, then you could simply read the sentence, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And you might be left to speculate, well, the invitation really was for Jesus and because you know he had these disciples following after him, then it was kind of extended to cover them also. But that's just if you read and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. But since the word both is in there, both Jesus and his disciples, in other words, Jesus had an invitation, the disciples had a very definite invitation. Again, the Greek word is kaleo, number 2564. It's quite remarkable when we delve into some things coming up much further down the road, when we delve into the aspect of the church and the wedding feast the marriage supper of the bride, and the aspect of the invitations as they go forth, and those who will despise the Father's invitation, and those who will not even go, those who have other priorities, and those who show up but they're not dressed appropriately, see. And so then they insult the Father for His invitation, and they insult the Son in the process that occurs there. The invitation 
part of it is is truly, um, I think, where a lot of the confusion comes in when some of those passages are mistaken. Interestingly enough, sub-point A, Mary is not said to have been invited, <laughs> but rather indicated as being there. Okay, in verse 1, Mary is not said to have been invited, but rather indicated as being there. Okay, and this isn't nitpicking or, you know, picking nits or <laughs> being picky. It's simply exegeting the text and recognizing that the collateral invitation comes in verse 2. Mary's presence is stated in verse 1, apart from any collateral reference. She's not said to be invited, but rather indicated as being there. Now, I'm not saying she crashed the party. <laughs> She's there and she needs to be there. She's there for real reasons, but I'm saying she may be there in a capacity other than a guest capacity. She may be there in a, an organization capacity. She may be there in the uh, matchmaker arrange the marriage capacity. She may be there in, as the mother of the groom capacity or the mother of the bride capacity, realizing we don't know who's getting married in this text. <laughs> it doesn't matter who's getting married in this text because the issue isn't the wedding. The issue is the miracle. All right. Miracles being attestation of divine credential so that the message will be heeded. Point B, her specific responsibility in this wedding is not clear. Now, Jesus and the disciples are guests. A guest, by and large, has no responsibility. See, they're... Um, there are a variety of Greek and, and Roman customs where uh, one particular guest can sometimes be designated to have a responsibility um, in various other traditions. But none of that relates to what we assume here is a, is a Hebrew wedding, a Jewish wedding in Galilee, may not be. Um, but a guest, an invited one, doesn't have an obligation it's not like the groom who has an obligation, and he's introduced here in verse uh, 9. The head waiter has obligations, introduced here in verse uh, 8. Uh, the servants obviously have obligations. They're serving, they're working, they have obligations. And Mary apparently has an obligation here. See, she has some kind of obligation as it pertains to the wine, although it's not entirely clear what that obligation actually is. Her specific responsibility in this wedding is not clear. Under that, sub-point one. So why is she all worked up about the wine? <laughs> in other words, if she's a guest, like Jesus is a guest, like the disciples are a guest, then... If uh, then I guess you'd want to read some sarcasm into the Lord's question when he says, what business is that of ours? <laughs> Not our problem. It's the groom's problem. It's the head waiter's problem. See? Or it's the problem of the parents of the groom. See? And interestingly enough, under subpoint one now, she has a concern for the wine being served in verse three. And yet, she refers to it as their lack, their problem, rather than our problem. She says, they have no wine. They have no wine. It doesn't say we have no wine. It says they have no wine. 
So that's led to a lot of speculation. <laughs> Why is she all worked up about this? Why? What is she suggesting? See? And you can read all the commentaries in the world, and most of them will try to speculate that she's, she's uh, hinting, she's suggesting, she's offering the, the miracle opportunity to Jesus to launch into a full miracle career. Okay? Which, even that is rather speculative, and, and I dismiss that almost immediately. He has done no miracles up to this point. Why would she expect that he's going to... See, we're so spoiled 2,000 years after the fact looking back. Alright? But she's not, she doesn't have 2,000 years to look back with hindsight. Alright? Why would she expect him to walk on water, multiply loaves and fishes, um, cast out demons, all these things that we know he does. We know that he's got those miracles coming up. See, we know that because we're looking back in hindsight and we've read the whole gospel account and we know what he does. See, why would Mary have any expectation that, that he's going to miraculously supply wine in this wedding? Okay. So her part in this is quite remarkable in that um, she does have the concern and yet she refers to it as their problem, not our problem. She definitely uses the third person plural pronoun here. They have no wine, not we have no wine. Okay. Now there is reason to believe that obviously she has concern. And then secondly, she has influence with the servant staff in verse five. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. See, so the servants who you can imagine are, are frantic at this time, <laughs> right? They're busy. They're working. It's a big wedding. There's all these guests. The wine just ran out. There's a head waiter that's going to be all over them. Okay. And if, if Mary was just some invited woman that wasn't in charge of something, then you think they'd be listening to her orders? <laughs> Did they have time for her? Okay. But she uh, says, whatever he says to you, do it. And they do it. They, uh, when, when he says to them in verse 7, fill the water pots with water, they do it. Say, why do they do that? <laughs> why waste time filling these empty jugs with water? What's that going to do? And yet here's these servants applying faith. A lot of things that can be taught out of this. So again, both uh, the main point under point two, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Mary is not said to have been invited. Mary is there in verse one. There was a wedding. The mother of Jesus was there. Okay. Invitation is in verse two. Jesus and the disciples have the invitation. So keeping those aspects straight. Her specific responsibility is not clear, yet she's uh, concerned for the wine. She has influence with the servant staff. I'll make one other observation here just to throw into the mix and, and include it as evidence to be considered in the deductive reasoning process. Cana was also Nathaniel's hometown. Cana was also Nathaniel's hometown. John chapter 21 and verse 2. So the disciples' invitation may not have been due to their association with Jesus or his association with Mary. See, that's how it's usually understood. 
this was Mary's wedding or Mary's, uh, not Mary's wedding. She didn't remarry, but Mary was in charge of this wedding. One of her daughters, one of her sons. See, typically it would, would have been a boy. All right. Um, and what have you? Joseph's not around anymore. Jesus is the firstborn son. So if this is James or Simon or one of the younger brothers getting married here, then it would be natural for Mary to uh, bring that up with Jesus. But we also acknowledge under John 21, 2, that Cana is the hometown for Nathaniel. That's how he was so derisive of Nazareth, the inner uh, rivalry between the two cities there in Galilee and between Nazareth and Canaan. They were not that far apart, skipping and jump, as it were. And yet there was that disdain when Nathaniel says back in chapter 1, can any good thing come out of Nazareth as he snorts in verse 46? I don't actually see the word snort in there, but I think it's understood. <laughs> All right. But he's from Cana. So this is another aspect to stop and consider as to why the disciples had an invitation, why Jesus had an invitation. And I think we get sidetracked if we spend all our time trying to figure out why they were invited. Okay, And there's a whole lot of writers out there that have written all kinds of commentary on this that, that basically view it as Mary's being invited. But since Jesus was back in town now after 40 days in the wilderness and all the other stuff out there getting baptized and everything, she uh, uh, managed to get him an invitation. But, lo and behold, he came dragging in these six fishermen and these other big thugs and stuff, and they drank all the wine. And so, really, Mary's complaining because Jesus brought too many of these drunks that have used up all the wine, and now the bridegroom's going to be stuck, and the real guests are going are gonna to be left out. Okay? Now, it's a little bit humorous, but tragically, that's typically what... A standard commentary is going to say about this as they speculate on on the different things involved. I just hope if we can look at this verse by verse and recognize where the invitation is and what the what the conversation is between us, uh, between Mary and Jesus and uh, his answer back to her. And then the miracle, the miracle itself. And I think that will put some things in into a proper perspective. All right. Point three, Jesus words to Mary are the first recorded since Luke 2:49 The last time we had a conversation between Jesus and his mother he was 12 years old it was the last recorded conversation so if you want to hold your finger at John 2 you can look back to Luke 2 just by way of reminder it wasn't that long ago when we were dealing with this And he said to them why is it that you were looking for me did you not know that I had to be in my father's house or among my father's business all right these are the first recorded words ah, side by side why is it you were looking for me did you not know that i had to be in the things of my father those were the last recorded words until we get to john chapter 2 and mary says to him they have no wine and again he has a question for her what to me and to you, woman, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And we're going to spend a bit of time here in that idiom, in that phrase, what to me and to you. Okay? Because it can be very negative. It can be very uh, taunting. 
dismissive. This could be a, uh, um, a negative rejection saying, none of my business. See, or since he includes her, none of our business, not our problem. Okay. The problem is, is that's not consistent either with A, the Lord's character, <laughs> B, the immediate context of the passage, which we'll see here in a moment. He's not blowing them off and saying, who cares? Because he turns right around and he provides wine. See, if he was really that dismissive, if he was really that negative, like, not my problem. My hour has not yet come. What hour is he talking about there anyway? Well, we'll, we'll look at that. Okay. Generally speaking, when he talks about my hour, he's talking about going to the cross. Although, one thing we should consider is in this, in this um, environment, in this setting, we're dealing with a wedding. And so when he says, my hour has not yet come, he may not actually be referring to the cross, although I think he is. I think you also need to consider the possibility that he's referring to a wedding. He's referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's referring to a day in which he will be providing new wine. He's going to be providing some abundant new wine, and none of us are going to get drunk. What a day that's going to be. Okay? And I think that has to be considered, although very few will... We'll, uh, we'll look at that, and primarily because the expression hour has not yet come is so common in the Gospels. And every time it appears in the sense of hour has not yet come, it has a reference to the cross. It refers to the hour of the betrayal, the death, and the uh, work of redemption. So I think since that's, that's what hour has not yet come refers to everywhere else, I think that's what you want to keep in your mind, at least initially, and that's just a general rule of interpretation. If something means something everywhere, then you don't want to take one place and say, well, this time it means something different, unless there's valid hermeneutical reasons to do so. And as I say, the, the setting of a wedding here and the provision of wine may in fact be valid enough reason to take this use of our has not yet come and apply it to something besides the cross. I, I think that you can make a case for that, but... Um, that would require some more work to do. So you can put those down as A and B if you like, for those of you keeping notes in the outline. Again, main point three, Jesus' words to Mary are the first recorded since Luke 2.49. And again, we want to be careful in taking these the wrong way because you can read into it uh, a negative tone. You can read into it a dismissive nature. Like, why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in the things of my father? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So quit bugging me. Get out of here, mom. Get off my back. Go back to Galilee. See you later. I'm staying in, in Jerusalem. Is that what he said? No. See, he said, did you not know I must be about my father's business? And then he returned with them and he remained in subjection to them. He, he uh, submitted to their authority to their leadership he's only 12 years old after all submits to their authority goes back home with them okay and so i don't view either of these questions as being negative i view them as being uh inquisitive he actually is requesting information did you not know did you not know which we talked about when we dealt with that passage a few lessons ago jesus christ had an understanding of the will of god that it was time to to get under teaching, it was time to start his ministry. 
And he is rather surprised that Joseph and Mary didn't have the same view. (laughs) Didn't you know? And since they didn't know, he submitted to their wisdom, their older age, to their um, timing. He submitted to their authority. And what do you know? They were right. His baptism event wasn't for another 18 years, minimum. See? So, I view both questions not being negative and dismissive because on the one hand, he submits to Mary and Joseph and goes back to live in in Nazareth. And now in this chapter, it's not like he's dismissing her, blowing her off and then not doing anything about it. He's answering her question with a question of his own and he's providing the miracle. He's supplying the wine. So rather than look at these things as negative sarcasm, look at these things as a positive statement in terms of the questions that are asked. And we'll break this down for you here as well. One thing we will note, though, and I think it helps us to understand how to take the question, and don't, don't be insulted by the word woman. You, you would all be very insulted just given the 21st century American culture and the nature of the English language in common use if I was to speak to any of you here this morning as woman. Right? <laughs> Um, especially Gary and Michael, they would really be insulted. But even the women here would be insulted. See, it would just, you know, you wouldn't address somebody as a woman. It, it tends to be blunt, harsh, negative, you know. Like, I won't illustrate, but it, it, it would be, it would not be friendly. Don't, don't think that in terms of uh, this context or this passage, because this was a respectful mode of address. Uh, He will call her by the same thing. He will call her woman when he's hanging on the cross and says, woman, behold your son. And so it's not, it's not, um, it has no negative connotations whatsoever. In fact, just the opposite. It's a very respectful connotation. Uh, And and as such, you know, the modern equivalent, we would say ma'am, you know, just as a a formal address, as a means of respect um, in, in addressing an older woman. All right, Mary's response. She is neither rebuked nor discouraged. She is neither rebuked nor discouraged. In fact, she gets very busy about talking to the servants and getting stuff done and knowing that Jesus is about to do something here. But she's not discouraged. He didn't blow her off. She didn't take his statement of what to me and to you, woman. She didn't take that to be dismissive and negative. Like, I'm just going to blow it off. I don't care. None of my business. She took it to be a positive statement. And so in excitement over his positive statement, she then runs to these servants and says, all right, we're going to do something about this wine problem. Listen to what he tells you to do. Okay. And keep in mind, she may still be thinking in natural terms. She may still be thinking that he's going to run out to H-E-B somewhere. He's going to, (laughs) you know, that he's going to have a resource an earthly resource, some kind of aspect of, of providing for this. She may not even at this point understand that it's going to be a, uh, a work of divine power. So she is neither rebuked nor discouraged by Christ's answer. And I think as we view her response here, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. See, if he was being negative and dismissive, then you have a hard time understanding what, why she's talking to the servants this way, unless maybe she's also being 
negative and grumbling and saying, well, I'll throw my hands up and okay, fine, whatever. You know, whatever he says. See, let's, let's get out of that mindset because it only rolls downhill and gets worse if we follow that line of thinking. She's not discouraged. She's not rebuked. She's encouraged and she's eager to get these things taken care of. So in a point four, let's look at this phrase. Tiemoikaisoi in the Greek. What does that have to do with us? <laughs> what does that have to do with us? That's how the New American Standard rendered it. In fact, that's how the New American Standard 1995 revision handled it. This is such an awkward phrase that there's a difference even in the New American Standard translation. The original New American Standard reads one way and then they modified it a little bit for the 95 update. All right, as a matter of fact, in 22 different English Bibles, I found 21 different readings. All right, <laughs> so you understand why, how just simply grammatically this is a snag and why contextually this is a snag because although the Hebrew idiom is fairly straightforward, even the Hebrew idiom from the Old Testament is used in some different ways. The literal words there, T is the, is the interrogative what. Amoy uh, is the dative, uh, first person singular, me, to me, or for me. Kai uh, is the and, and soy is the second person singular, you. You, singular, one person, you. Again, dative uh, case, so it's to you or for you. What, to me, and to you. What, for me, and for you. The dative case being either to or for, expressing purpose or, or uh, uh, indirect discourse, other things. What does that have to do with us? Now, it may not necessarily be dismissive is what I'm going to try to say here this morning. It may not be dismissive, although that's how all the commentators take it. What is that my business? My hour has not yet come. Okay? And it's usually taken as being dismissive as saying, none of my business, it's not time for me to start doing miracles yet problem with that is he starts doing miracles <laughs> okay not a matter for you and i to be worried about see if you take it positively if you take it positively then instead of instead of being what does that have to do with us you could say not a matter for you and i to be worried about or even no problem see what's a little wine between us see wine that's only a temporal life circumstance in detail. Okay? You know, believers today, you and I today ought to have such a thing. Such a mental attitude. If we're focused on the kingdom of God and His righteousness, if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, what does He promise? All these things shall be added unto you. Okay? Everything else is just details. Everything else, well, you know, that's just money. You know, that's just time. That's just whatever. And what's that? See, people get all sidetracked and they say, well, I'd really like to, uh, to do such and such, see, for example. Um, well, like the opportunity that when Jim Myers was here in December and extended the invitation to come to Kiev and then re-extended that invitation to come to Kiev when he returned to Kiev, see. Well, something I took to the deacon, something we wanted to pray about, something we wanted to seek God's will over, talk to Sharon about, see if maybe Sharon wants to come too. She'd be invited. See, my son would kill 
<laughs> to go over there. Bob would thrive over there. All right? Maybe there'll be a mission trip coming up where I will take him, that kind of thing. But seeking his will first, determining whether, it, like the Philippines trip last year, like Kiev next year, is it, is it God's will? Is it what he wants me to do? See? And if it is, then the issue is, do I obey or do I disobey? And the actual finances to get there, well, you know what? Those are just details. Those are just details. Because he promised, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. If it's the will of God for a Kiev trip to take place, then God will provide for it. See? So, viewing his statement as, in, 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 as a positive one rather than a negative one, then you can, rec- you can translate the Tia Moikai Soi as, what to you and to me? Or what to me and to you? In other words, what, what kind of problem is that for us? See, what to me and to you? They have no wine. Well, what, what big deal is that for me and for you? See, we have a heavenly father. We have provision. Some earthly lack, what is that? And, and if, you view, if you view his question in a positive manner, it sets in context our orientation to temporal life things versus spiritual things. What is that? It's just money. It's just wine. It's just a temporal life lack. The Father knows we need these things. He'll provide. So it may be a supportive statement, in which case we can translate the tea of Moikai Soy as not a matter for you and I to be worried about. Or even no problem. To really give it a slang kind of <laughs> 21st century American approach. No problem. They have no wine. No problem. What is that to you and to me? No problem. See, it'd be like asking uh, Michael Dell for, for, you know, 50 bucks or something, you know? <laughs> He'd be like, no problem. What is that? What's 50 bucks to a billionaire, you know? All right. So just to recognize that there may be a positive way to take this expression. Sub point A, the Hebrew idiom is found twice in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, the circumstances are different and the way that you take it is different. Same idiom and yet different context and, and understood in different ways. All right. Judges 11, 12, 2 Samuel 16, 10. Judges 11, 12. Why is the Old Testament context important to interpret John chapter 2? Well, because Aramaic being the spoken language of the, of the day, given that... Uh, these are all Jewish people we're talking about. Jesus was Jewish. The language they spoke was Aramaic. And much of the Greek in the New Testament is heavenly influenced by what are called Hebraisms, uh, idioms, figures of speech, um, colloquialisms, other, uh, other features that are common in the Hebrew language that are not at all native to Greek, but they creep into the Greek of the New Testament when it is a, a Hebrew speaker or writer that is, that is uh, communicating. All right, Judges chapter 11. Matter of fact, since we have the opportunity to do this, Judges 11 and verse 12. 
There you see your Tiamoy Kaisoi right there in the Greek Septuagint. All right. And here it is in the Hebrew. The ma is the what? Li is to me. Walaka is to you. Ma, li, walaka. All right. Now this is Jephthah. You familiar with Jephthah? Judges chapter 11. And Jephthah the Gileadite, the chapter begins, Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, a mighty man of valor, a Gabor HaChayil, described in amazing terms, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. He's got great paternal lines as far as being a prince of Israel, as far as being a, a respected among his uh, tribe, among his clan, among his family, as one of the princes of Israel. Other than the fact, of course, that his mother was not Mrs. Uh, Gilead. His mother was a harlot. See? So he's a bastard. He's an illegitimate son. He's uh, as an illegitimate son. He's not, he's not entitled to enter into the solemn assembly. He can't join in the Passover uh, rituals. He cannot join in the other. Uh, he's not eligible by virtue of his birth. All right. Gilead's wife, Mrs. Gilead here, bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, it's quite interesting. He's listed in verse one before the stepbrothers or half-brothers are listed in verse two. And so it's, it's quite likely that he's actually the firstborn son, that, he's, uh, that he is Gilead's oldest um, and quite likely, you know, born of this harlot before Gilead was even married. But whatever the case, Gilead's wife then has children. And just like Sarah didn't want Ishmael around <laughs> well, once Isaac was born, these other sons don't want Jephthah anywhere around because of the inheritance issue. You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. Okay? These Belials, these worthless fellows. And that's, that's a whole other study all on its own. Um, David gathered malcontents, but they had been oppressed by Saul. Here's Jephthah gathering Belials, worthless fellows, and it's... Uh, Interesting here. It came about after a while, the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, and the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. The elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. All right? In other words, they're in trouble. And he might be a bastard. He might be illegitimate. He might be a disgrace to the family, a disgrace to the clan, a disgrace to the tribe. But the fact of the matter is, is he is a Gibor HaChayil, a valiant warrior, a mighty man of valor. He is a warrior of the likes of Samson, the likes of Gideon, the likes of uh, David, the likes of Saul when he was early, young in fellowship. He is a tremendous hero. See, you read, read David's account of his mighty men, the men that could, you know, kill a lioness pit on a snowy day. <laughs> All right. Stuff like that. That's Jephthah. Okay. So quite remarkable when things are going fine they could be judgmental against him and prideful and blow him off and dismiss him and but now that they need him <laughs> go get him you see we need this military guy we need to be delivered so uh 
Jephthah in verse 7 said to the elders, uh, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? Okay. And the elders of Gilead said, Well, we're in trouble. <laughs> For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. See, we'll, we'll make you our, our tribal chief. We'll make you the clan, uh, actually the clan chief over the clan of Gilead. Gilead wasn't a tribe of Israel, <clears throat> but it was a clan, all right? And you can become head, the clan head, see? So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and Jehovah, there's the Lord, you see the all caps in there? Jehovah, the Lord, gives them up to me. Will I become your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord, Jehovah, is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Remarkably enough, the first one to mention Jehovah was Jephthah, not these elders. And once he turned it into a spiritual matter and called Jehovah as the witness, they agreed to it. All right. All that is background, and that leads us into verse 11. Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and with the people... And the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all uh, his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Again, the Lord is the witness. And, and Jephthah is entering into service on behalf, not of Gilead, but on behalf of Jehovah. Then verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the uh, sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me? And that's the expression, T emoi kaisoi. What is it between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? In other words, what is the grievance? What is the matter? You can view it as negatively, as a taunt. You could view it as positively, as just simply a question. What's the grievance? What business do we have with each other? Why, why is Ammon waging war against the Gileadites? And the king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land. See, the, the answer doesn't come back as if it was some kind of a taunt. The answer comes back as if Jephthah is literally asking a question. What is between us? Let's clear the air here. Let's clear the decks. What is the grievance between us? How can we resolve it? See, so it's not necessarily a scornful, dismissive question. The Ammonites are giving an explanation. Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from, from the Arnon, as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan. Therefore, return them peaceably now. All right. Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said to, them, said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel didn't take away the land of Moab or the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not listen. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom. You see what a Bible student Jephthah is? You see how he has the whole framework of the walk through the Bible? He's got the whole understanding of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and they camped beyond the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of the Heshbon, 
Uh, and Israel said to him, Please, let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. All right. He says, Let's just clear the record here. You say we took away your land. Here's what really happened. Our, this is what really happened. And the Bible records what happened. And this is what the Lord is doing. See. The Lord... Yahweh, verse 21, the God of Israel, the Elohim of Israel. Now, you're an Ammonite, and you may not know who Yahweh is, but I'm going to witness to you right here and now. We're going to evangelize, even while we work out this treaty between us, so we don't have to go to war. See, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, A-M-O-R, not Ammonites, Amorites, the inhabitants of the country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now Jehovah, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Okay. So this is the key. The Ammonites are saying you took our land. And Jephthah says, no, we took the Ammonites, the Amorites land. And we didn't actually take it. Jehovah gave it to us. <laughs> so don't blame us for taking your land. Jehovah gave us the Amorites land. And if you now want to press this phony case and try to take land back that doesn't belong to you, you're not dealing with us. You're dealing with Jehovah, the Elohim of Israel, the God of Israel. Okay. Now, Jephthah. As I say, he's a mighty man of valor. He's a Samson. He's a David. He's a, a Gideon. I mean, this is a guy who could just grab soldiers and go kill people. Okay? In the will of God, of course. But he's also humble before the word of God. He's a student of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's also one who would rather lead these people to Christ than simply kill them and hold on to their land. Okay? Amazing things you can study out here. But again, to go back to that actual idiom that appears in verse 12, when he says, what is between you and me? What is, that's the idiom we're looking at and, and relating it back in John chapter 2. And we, we want to get out of our mind that it's, it's a negative thing, that it's dismissive. Because Jephthah is not being dismissive. He wants to know, what is your grievance? And then he wants to be able to reason together. He wants to be able to go into the Scriptures. See, I'm telling you, this could this could expand into a full series on uh, Christian problem solving uh, activities. See, you got two uh, believers that are have a grievance between them. Well, what is this between you and me? Let's go to the scriptures. Let's see what the Lord says about all of this. OK, and that's what Jeff is doing here with these Gentiles. Nope, I'll have to call back in eight minutes. All right. I thought I had turned that ringer off. I don't want that ringer to go during Bible class. So anyway, um, it's not necessarily a dismissive idiom. OK, that's one place where this appears. The other time in the Old Testament where the idiom appears is Second Samuel, chapter 16, Second Samuel, chapter 16 and verse 10. So let's get a look at that as well. Second Samuel 16, 10. 
<laughs> and here's David. This does express some um, frustration. This does express some um, actual grief on David's part. But we understand that not because of the phrase that he uses. We understand that because of the surrounding context and the, the total grief that, that these jerks are doing in David's life. <laughs> All right. When the king said, what have I to do with ye, you, ye sons of Zeruiah? Okay. But in the context here, we, we recognize that um, these nephews of his, and, and we really broke a lot of this down more thoroughly in the uh, Life of David study. Let me turn over here and get a, a broader context. Um, that uh, with, with Joab and with... Um, uh, Abishai and the third brother in here and I'm having a, a name cramp at the moment um, this is during Absalom's rebellion when David has to flee town okay and then this guy comes out to curse him this Shimei, the son of Garrett he's going to be throwing stones and cursing him and doing all this stuff and Abishai, the son of Zeruiah said to the king why should this dead dog curse my lord the king let me go over there and cut off his head <laughs> All right. And that's that's perfect. That is exactly the kind of deacon any pastor wants. If there's trouble in the church, just send a deacon over there, cut off his head and we're done with it. All right. <laughs> Take care of the problem. Right. And David's pulling his hair out. What am I going to do with you guys? The king said, what have I to do with you? O sons of Zeruiah. That was his sister, so they're his nephews. Um, he says, if he curses, and if the Lord, Jehovah, has told him to curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Why are you so eager to go attack Shimei? This might be part of my divine discipline. Say, if, if the Lord's behind this, how can we fight it? So... Um, in verse 11, David said to Abishai, to all his servants, behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone. Let him curse. For Jehovah has told him. Perhaps Jehovah will look on my afflictions and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. See, maybe this is divine discipline. Maybe it's undeserved suffering. But I'm going to let the Lord handle it. I don't have to seek my own vengeance. I don't have to go and destroy Shimei. Lord will deal with that. Okay. Now, later on, he will go and deal with Shimei. <laughs> All right, but that's a separate story. And that's after the Lord vindicates him, uh, lifts him up, returns him back to his throne, establishes sovereignty. Then Shimei receives the consequences for what he does here in this chapter. But that's, that's down the road. The phrase, though, the idiom we're looking at in verse 10, what do I have to do with you? And you recognize that what is happening here is you have the statement made by um, Abishai, that's not inconsistent with that's not consistent with the will of God. That's not right. See? And David is clearly rebuking him here in this in this context. But it's not the idiom that defines it. It's the whole story that defines it. It's the whole story that lets us understand that that idiom is in this instance one of David being just totally frustrated. Okay? So 
Are you following me on this? The, the, the surrounding context in, in Judges didn't show being negative, didn't show Jephthah uh, being dismissive or, or, or negative. It was positive. The context here shows it being negative and dismissive and David just totally beside himself. He's a type of Christ, by the way. This is going to happen again when uh, in, in typology. It'll happen again when Jesus Christ is passing through Samaria and the Samarians won't let, uh, won't let him in to buy provision in the village. And so James and John get all mad and say, let's call down fire from heaven and blast this city. And Jesus must have had this verse in his mind, pulling his hair out. What am I going to do with you, you sons of thunder? See, and here's David, you sons of Zeruiah. Okay, so the the parallelism, David obviously is the one of the biggest types of Christ we have in the whole Testament. But the the aspect of it here, I think, should be fairly easy to spot. So we got a, a positive example with Jephthah. We've got the dismissive, frustrated example with David. And now we look, we go back to Christ. And we, we, want, we have to legitimately ask, is this, is, is this frustrated? Is he negative like David? Is he pulling out his hair? Is he, is, he, is he so sick and tired of his mom? Like David was just so sick and tired of Joab and Abishai. I mean, that event in Samuel was not the first time that his nephews really had done dirt. Or wanted to see. So I, I think consistently now, since we know that a positive understanding is at least possible, I think it's best to look at chapter two as a positive understanding that he's not angry with his mom, he's not dismissing her, he's not he's not rejecting the idea. He actually is being supportive, positive. He's he's saying, What is that to me and to you? Wine, what is that? No problem. For you, mom, anything. Right? For you, Mom, you know, what is that between me and you? Wine? I'll give you anything you want. You know? And as the Son of God, He can. <laughs> you know? What, what can't He provide? So, I view the, uh, the question as being a positive rather than a negative. And I will close. Not only is it found twice in the Old Testament, but under subpoint B, the demons use it. It's an idiom that the demons use in Mark chapter 1 and verse 24. And they use it again in Mark 5 and verse 7. A couple of times in the Gospel of Mark. The demons are using it. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. Um, this is in Capernaum. He goes in there, begins to teach. On the Sabbath, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. We get an insight into what the, the scribes and Pharisees' teaching was like. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Now what was he doing in there? And how long has he been there? And how long has he been very comfortable in their synagogue under the Sadducees' teaching? Obviously nothing provoked him before now. But now with a spirit-filled prophet in his presence, the unclean spirit cries out, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? 
And it's the, the, uh, the idiom, Mark 1.24 Oops. It would help if I could type this morning. King James, what have we to do with thee? Uh, Holman, what do you have to do with us? The uh, New American Standard, I've already read. What business do we have with each other? NIV, what do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth. The actual idiom is T Amin Kai Soy. What with us and you. So it's slightly different. It's not what me and you, it's what us and you. Us and you. Either a plurality of demons or the demon and the man together. What do you want with us? All right. But there's the idiom. I know who you are. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? The plur- I believe that's plurality of demons. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. Okay? So, what business do we have? Um, and I'm out of time here, but when we, we see that there's a time issue over in the chapter 5 instance, chapter 5 and verse 7, shouting with a loud voice, he said, again, it's a, it's a demon. Uh, shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. Do not torment me. In the parallel account, I think it's in Luke, where they say, Have you come to torment us before the, before the time? See, demons know their day is coming. Satan knows his day is coming. All right, well, we'll come back to this. I'm out of time, but we'll come back to this. These, these are confrontational. These are, uh, are uh, argumentative. But what would you expect between a demon and Jesus Christ? Okay? Don't allow these idioms to influence the conversation between Jesus and his mom. We don't expect that the conversation between Jesus and his mom is going to be similar to a conversation between demons and Jesus Christ. All right? So we'll come back to this again one week from today. Lord willing, rapture pending, of course. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we do thank you for the provision of wine, not just earthly wine in an earthly wedding, but, Father, we are anticipating the new wine. We're anticipating the wedding supper of the Lamb. Father, we're asking day by day and waiting day by day for that trumpet to be blown, for Christ to come forth with a shout. Father, today, today might even be that day, and we ask that it might be even so come Lord Jesus, we pray, Maranatha, in his most precious and holy name. Amen.